0: I'm Abby Kenny and you are listening to UpZoned. The pizza. OG Don't hurt this clean, on. Hey everyone, thank you for listening to another episode of UpZoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the strong town's conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney. I'm a planner in Kansas City, and I am joined once again by our regular co-host, Mr. Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. How's it going, Chuck?
1: Hey, it's going great. I think that people don't know now, obviously, you and I have been doing this by audio, and now we can all of a sudden see each other. And we're not sharing the video with people yet. I kind of said maybe someday we will, but it's fun to be able to see you now when we do these. It's, it's kind of cool.
0: Well, it definitely causes us to talk long before we record. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, it, it, it does tend to extend the uh, the front and back time of recording. Uh,
0: yeah, we more. should have recorded our previous conversation about dog <laughs> training and, uh, and house building. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure people would have loved to listen to that.
1: <laughs> well, all the snow here melted in the last week, and then now all of a sudden we got like six inches last night. So we're going through that March trauma here where like it's spring. Nope. It's winter. No, it's spring. No, it's winter. And you just kind of got to learn to roll with it. I'm I'm dealing with it.
0: You know what? It's basically summer here now. (laughs) Just kidding. It's been like in the sixties for the past three weeks. So I'm feeling pretty good about it. I'm No longer thinking of moving to Phoenix or somewhere warm. I can <laughs> I can cope now, but I think next week we'll be in the 50s, and so it'll be kind of a bummer. But
1: well, a house just went up for sale, just two uh, blocks down from me. You're you're maybe covered
0: I can, in snow.
1: <laughs> <laughs> maybe I could talk you into coming looking at it.
0: Freezing. I don't I don't know how you do it. It's very impressive. It's it's definitely a lifestyle. <laughs> Okay, so the story that we are going to be covering today is called The Case for a Duty to the City. And it was published in Bloomberg City Lab and written by Carlo Ratti and Saskia Sassen. So this story focuses primarily on the trends we are now seeing in New York City. Many of you know, over the past year, New York has a lot of empty real estate, and that is caused by former residents leaving their apartments, going to the suburbs, businesses that are perhaps shuttering for good, and then also formerly office-based companies that are expected to reduce their space by 30% moving forward. So as you might imagine, a lot of empty space in Manhattan right now, and that puts one of our most front row American cities at a crossroads. And as troublesome as that might be, the authors propose that this is an opportunity to rethink some of our policies in an innovative way. And they say that this is an opportunity for us to have a duty to recapitalize our cities. Not necessarily in a financial way, but in terms of living capital. So they call this principle the duty to the city, meaning that to strengthen our cities, if you possess a property, you should not leave it empty. And some of the ways we might implement something like this, they propose new fiscal policies, specifically a vacancy tax as well as flexible zoning regulations. And the intent of this is to discourage building owners from neglecting the social impact of their properties by leaving them unused. So they had a great quote in here towards, I think, the end of the article where they basically say that a a city is not an agglomeration of real estate assets. It is primarily a repository of human vitality, without which those assets would be worthless. So I found this article to be very provocative. And my reaction to this has been kind of mixed. And because on one hand, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I am someone who despises people who speculate on vacant properties. There's nothing that annoys me more. But on the other hand, I, I'm i kind of unsure that these policies would directly get the kind of outcomes that that the authors are advocating for. And I do want to get your initial reaction on this, Chuck. Do you think that these two things are going to help restore what New York City was before?
1: It's a really interesting question. And I, I feel like the article, you know, coming from Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg is now this interesting crossover territory where you have kind of its core of financial reporting mixed in with the City Lab aspect now of kind of what comes at it from more of an urbanist lens and this article is is one of these kind of crossover articles where yeah this city is more than a collection of just real estate assets it's it's human beings well if you read Bloomberg two years ago when it was just purely a financial publication no it's a collection of real estate assets and if you read city lab you know a couple of years ago when it was just city lab you were getting you know a, a more no it's all about people and the interesting thing to me in this article kind of captures is that that crossover right that tension it's funny because in in financial publications there have been a lot of articles about the emptying out of new york city and the emptying out of san francisco and the exodus from this place and that place and major cities are experiencing decline and it's interesting because a- anecdotally I mean, obviously, I've not been to these places since the beginning of the pandemic because I've been stuck here. But my friends who are there have attested to this and have said, yeah, like I moved. I do no longer live there. Yes, when I go there, it's very empty. Yes, there's lots of empty spaces. But th- then there's all of this, uh, what I'm just going to call like the the alternate pushback narrative coming through the media, which is, no, these places are all full. They're full of vitality. There's, there's, there's a long line of people that want to live there. I interviewed Richard Florida a couple of weeks ago and he's like, you know, New York is going to do fine. They're going to be great. I feel like this article starts to get at where this is actually going to end up, which is let's just say a less financialized, lower burn rate, more human kind of place. And I think the challenge here is going to be, how do you transition the financial environment and the regulatory environment to actually get to a place where people can use these properties. To me that's what this article is getting at and they approach it from a, a human standpoint and they're kind of like you have a duty to use your property and like yeah okay like billionaires keeping you know the full floor of the penthouse unoccupied while there's homeless people on the street or people can't afford a place like i i get why the dissonance of that is doesn't make sense but ultimately you know, to get New York and other major cities, the vitality they need and moving back. And I think what Richard Florida has has said is kind of like, well, here's a, they got to change financial regulations. They got to change zoning codes. They got to change a a whole lot of things that were designed for a very different city.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, You know, I think my first reaction or kind of the devil's advocate perspective I had when I was reading this was around what happens when you institute a vacancy tax when the market is down, because it's not necessarily the property owner's fault that coronavirus happened, you know, it's totally out of their hands. And so it it seems like in some instances, applying a vacancy tax when the market is truly down and they truly can't get someone in their building um, perhaps could cause unintended consequences for the types of owners who maybe inherited the building and don't necessarily, it's not like they own thousands of buildings across the globe and it's part of this big financial approach. Can I make the case for
1: it though? Yeah, sure. Let me make the case because I, I don't know as I support it either, but I can see like a case being made. So if you look at like New York retail, and I even noticed this the last time I was there, which was way before the pandemic, it was at the end of 2019. Um, New York has a surprising number of vacant retail spaces. You know, you wouldn't think that in such a, a, a robust market. They also have, as we're discussing, this rental vacancy thing that's starting to shake out now too. Depending on how those things are financed, when they're financed through commercial real estate products, what you wind up with is basically distant owners who have bought a securitized financial product. So you may own a tranche of this or you know, a slice of that. And that product is all based on and assessed or a perceived or or a uh, a calculated rental rate that rental rate is let's just say for the sake of round numbers $1000 a square foot that you're looking at getting or $1000 a month let's think of it and so everything that in that financial product including it that the financial product's total value is based on getting $1000 a month if you go into a recession, or you go into a downturn, or you go into whatever we're calling what we're going through now, uh, this shakeout and this turn, and you find that the market can only support five hundred dollars a month in rent, not a thousand. Well, what that actually means is that your securitized product and your portfolio is worth half the amount of money. It's actually worth like a lot less. And if you think of the financialized market, if you start dropping values of these financialized products by 5%, 10%, 25%, 50%, you disrupt not only the holders of that, but all of the people who are like leveraged in the system trying to arbitrage this and have borrowed money in, in long-term markets to short-term speculate. It is all wrapped up in this too-big-to-fail, very fragile financial system that we're kind of held hostage to. This is why we pump all kinds of money into it. This is why we give billion dollars to billionaires to, to, you know, and and float these banks. This is why we do all this stuff. Well, if you look at it from the other end, the way this happens, the way this turns out is that your incentive financially is to sit on this property until you can find someone to give you $1,000 a month rent. And you will take a loss quarter after quarter after quarter waiting, you know, with it empty, waiting at $1,000 a month, because the financial impact to you of acknowledging that the market has gone down means a repricing of your asset and all these other cascading problems. And so it's better to just, in the business, they call it extend and pretend, just pretend that it will ultimately work itself out and fix itself. Because, you know, we're just going to pump some money in the system until it does. If you put in a vacancy tax what you do is you impose a very real cost that changes that end dynamic. And so now you're saying the holding cost of keeping this property vacant is no longer just the security that you bought or the bond that you own or the, the, the opportunity cost of the tranche that you're in that you can hopefully recoup at some point. There is a real ongoing financial penalty to sitting in this underperforming asset. And so it creates kind of this market incentive you know, the, in theory for people to move off of that asset and free it up so that the market can make good use of it. I don't know as I buy that whole theory, like I don't know as I buy like all that, but that's what a vacancy tax is in a sense designed to do is to, to break up this financialization uh, machine.
0: Well, that's why when it comes to ownership, it's really important to make this distinction because there are owners that own thousands of assets and they're just going to sit on their property until they can get the rents that they demand. And that type of activity should be penalized. And at the same time, if the market is truly decimated and nobody is going to be able to use spaces, which I am skeptical about we don't want to penalize the people who might be local owners who have had this building in their family for for generations because like that would ultimately mean that the the penalties would could cause them to have to give up their building and if they give up their building where does it go it probably goes to these giant conglomerates who own real estate all across the world so we don't want to have policies that ultimately make local ownership less feasible um, so that a couple of companies can own everything because that is a very bad situation to me.
1: <laughs> right, you're, you're making me more of an advocate of this now. Say there's a family that's owned a building for 30 years and you know they don't wanna get hit with this occupancy tax. I would surmise, and I'm going to put forth to you, that unless they have gone out and done some crazy securitization thing themselves to try to pull the equity out and spend it in other places, in other words, unless they've gone, tried to become like big players, they're going to own that building outright or have a lot of equity capital built into it already, which means for them, lowering the rent to clear the market is going to be just fine. Like It may not be what they want to do, but they have the flexibility to lower the rent. When you're in a financialized product, a financialized system, the thing that you lack is the flexibility to lower the rent. I mean, you, you have a little bit, but you can't go maybe to what a market clearing price is. That's where I feel like New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Boston, Austin, these very hot markets, all this capital flooded into them during... The boom times, and it was like great, like things are going wonderful, like we're doing really well. But you change that in any way, and they're basically stuck. They become this machine that's broken, that's that's stuck, and I, you know, you you need to get it, get it unstuck in a sense. And I, I feel like this article is the first real, like, comprehensive thought of how you get things unstuck.
0: Yeah, exactly, and I think that it's interesting how they talk about this being the duty to the city. Because when thinking of financialized markets, you know, it's it's their duty to the financialized market,
1: right? (laughs) Yeah, it's your duty to shareholders and bondholders, and right, right. It's
0: like you've said, like like who is this god? And (laughs) if the aliens came to us, they probably think it was our god.
1: This might not be a bad framing, though, either, because. A lot of what needs to be done are policy decisions, right? And, well, and yeah. so, you know, if you frame it as like a duty to your fellow New Yorkers to do this, you may not convince someone to rent their place, but you may convince a politician or give them the rhetoric to uh, say we're going to change our zoning code or we're going to change our land use regulations.
0: And that's that is what I love about this framing because when I think of investors who sit on properties, speculate on properties, and it's really just just a financial asset to them. Duty, it's something that comes to my mind quite often in in my own neighborhood because I I really feel that it is disgraceful to own a piece of real estate and to not do anything with it. And especially in places where there is activity happening and there are other other options available to them. and, And the longer that a building sits and becomes blighted, the harder it's going to be to bring it back to life. So it's just such a it's, it's really a disgraceful investment strategy. And it's unfortunate that people do it. And especially because our, our country was founded in a lot of ways on this principle that we would have people with ownership. And of course, that principle has been distorted and sacrificed in a lot of ways over the years. But for those that do own real estate, I do think there is a responsibility that that you need to make it a contributing piece of the overall economy and community and you need to look after the asset that you own. And you know I'm, I would say I'm a real estate investor, but I bought a house last year and I do feel like I have an obligation to take care of it because someone put a lot of effort into building it 130 years ago and I'm one of many people who will look after it over the many years that this thing exists. And you know I, I the way I see it, it's like if I create something in my lifetime and maybe you feel this way too, Chuck, I would hope that when I'm, when I'm dead, that there are people who are taking care of it. And I think, I just feel like our culture has really divorced the idea of things being asset, assets with things being a functional piece of our overall community and that they play an important role. And we really have chosen to ignore the responsibility that comes with ownership and that causes us to really suffer greatly I do think that kind of makes the case for local ownership and how important that is because if things can be locally owned, there is a sense of social responsibility and accountability that comes with that. And it's very different than the types of owners who are faceless and detached and you don't even, you know, it's behind an LLC, which is owned by a corporation. Like it's, it gets so complicated and and there are so many real estate investors that, that are completely faceless to a community and have no social stake in what happens to the the greater area.
1: Right. You have expressed a little bit of indignation at the speculator. I understand that. I, I want to empathize with that because I, I think one of the most frustrating things is to live in a neighborhood and see land squandered, see property squandered, see opportunity squandered. I feel like it's important to, to just note you i think acknowledge this in your last statement that the reason why we have these speculators is because this is a good financial strategy you know if if you can if you can borrow money really cheaply which you know people with a lot of money have access to very cheap borrowing costs right now you, you and i don't if you and i are going to borrow money we have to pay real interest rates if very wealthy people are going to borrow money they can you know float they can they can access capital markets and get this very very cheaply if you can borrow very cheaply and you can buy an asset that has been appreciating by 6 8 10 15% a year consistently for you know more than a decade uh, actually, going back 30 years, it's been on this upward appreciation with a, a slight downward tick in 2008 to 2010, and then you know up. You can buy an asset that the Federal Reserve has said is tied to our overall economic health and cannot be allowed to go down. You can buy an asset that uh, essentially is in short supply. There's a lack of it, and there's more demand than there is supply right now because of how we've structured it. And, and you can buy an asset where... Local regulations uh, impede, uh, you know, anything that would really undermine its value. You know, you, the, the local governments have their own built-in incentive to have this asset inflated in price. And they have their own incentive to protect the people who are in it currently and not allow, say, accessory dwell, dwelling units or conversion to duplexes that would increase the supply and, and in theory, like lower the overall price. That is the most winning lucrative asset you could possibly invest in. I mean, that real estate is like the premium asset right now for Wall Street. And so I think we have to acknowledge, and you and I are both homeowners, that rising house prices is a very nice thing for us as homeowners. It's nice to think that my house will be worth $10,000, $20,000, $30,000 more Next year, that it'll be worth you know hundred thousand more five years from now. That that gives me like a, a warm glow inside because it allows me to kind of do things or 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 think things that you know make my life a lot easier. Understand that changing this policy means giving some of that up. I think we have to for the future and the health of our cities, but there are. A lot of forces arranged against not having this happen against continuing to keep housing as a financialized product as opposed to a product that is actually you know what it what it is, which is a more localized good
0: yeah and even if it is something that's an investment, it could be a more modest investment I mean I'd I would give that up for people to actually be able to own housing. I mean, I don't think we can continue on this trajectory that we're on. And um, it is unfortunate that we, and the thing is, is we talked about land value tax on this show before, and that's kind of what they're talking about here, or at least some version of that. And it, it seems like making zoning more flexible, having some kind of vacancy tax, parking lot taxes, things like that that's generally good policy anytime just to try to try to throw a wrench in this system that is making it easy to hurt communities. And yeah, it's just, it is a very frustrating system, especially living in a place where people actively speculate and they could live very far away and just sit on properties and do nothing. And I find it very disgraceful. And I understand that people Think different ways, and and they may not think what they're doing is wrong, um, and the system is set up to. I mean, don't hate the player, hate the game. Like the system is set up to allow people to do that, and I agree that we do need to be doing things to keep people from just taking advantage of neighborhoods.
1: Agreed. Let me put this in this perspective. I'm forty-seven you are uh you know more than a decade younger than me <laughs> 20 years. Uh, yeah you're two decades younger than me let's take someone two decades older than me who's 67 if the policy came to us and and it was we are going to localize housing and so we are going to unravel the mortgage backed securities market the secondary market we are going to really truly make financing of housing local. And we'll create all the, you know, government programs. So we'll go back to GI Bill and help people make down payments. But we're going to really make this about local banks and local banks are going to hold these loans and local banks are going to service them. And we're going to really localize the capital here. And and, and really, I think that's what needs to be done. I think the net result of that immediately or within a, a handful of years is that your property, my property, and the 67-year-old's properties cut in half in terms of total value. I think that's how big the impact of financialization is on housing prices. It goes back to uh, normal ratios where humans can afford things. and There's supply and demand shifts and people would build and what have you, but I, I think you would see an immediate cut in value of 50%. They don't
0: and, call it a bubble for nothing.
1: Exactly. In, in, <laughs> in your 20s, that is a pain uh, because it, it limits your ability to sell your house because maybe you're underwater now. You're probably in your 20s at like the peak of your mortgage, so you know you've just started paying it down. If you took a big hit. You'd have to come up with the cash difference if you wanted to sell and move. So all of a sudden, it changes your job tra- trajectory. It changes the places you can work, and you can't really move cities, let alone move neighborhoods. It, it changes your future in your life. If you look at me, uh, because I'm I'm two decades more advanced than you in life, I have a, a lot more equity. I have a lot more built in. It actually would hurt me because a part of my net worth, a part of my wealth is tied up in my house. But I would probably have the most flexibility of everybody to move on and start over. And it wouldn't be great to start over at age 50, but you know you could do it. That person who's 67 is completely screwed. This is 80% of their wealth. This is their nest egg. This is the thing they're planning on selling and retiring on. Th- this is how they're going to pay their medical bills. This is their inheritance to their children. This is the thing that they put everything into. And if you cut that by half and then I think, you know, suffer through the recessionary period that would come from that and, you know, the the diminishment of the stock market and all that, You wipe out the financial capacity of the 95% of the baby boom generation. They vote. They're not ever going to let this happen. And so to me, I I always wind up in this housing conversation back to this point where I think that what is ultimately the only way this is is dealt with is to try to enact policies like in this article to temper the amount that uh, financialization has this upward push on housing, and then try to create a market, a more localized market where we can. You're going to have to have wages catch up to housing because I don't think they'll ever in a million years, they being anyone who can affect the system, allow housing to drop to meet wages. I don't think that can happen because of how tightly entwined it is with financialization.
0: Yeah. I mean, it'll, it'll be painful if it ever does happen. And I think we're going to leave it at there because I've got I've to gotta stop in a few minutes. But before I leave you today, we're going to do The Down Zone, which is part of the show where we can share anything that we've been up to this week. Mine will be short, but I will start with you first.
1: I had opportunity to read the book Uprooted. And I think I said it, I, I I didn't say it like a Minnesotan there. Minnesota, we'd say uprooted. <laughs> up, up, but it's a book by Grace Olmstead. Grace is a contributor at Strongtown. She's done uh, some amazing writing. And this book is, uh, the subtitle is Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. It, it's about her hometown in Idaho and basically her experience moving away and then going back to kind of discover what has been left behind and it's very moving. It's very well written. It was an easy kind of comfortable read, but also very challenging because it, it lays bare a lot of what our policies and, and modernity has done to small towns. Um, but also gives a lot of hope for what, what could be. So I thought it was great and I highly recommend it.
0: Yeah. I love that. I might have to pick that book up. I actually don't have much to share for the down zone this week. I feel like I'm being very disappointing. I Well, have had hang on of- now.
1: Be- hang on now, because by the time this comes out, you will be back home. The big yeah. thing in your life is you're, you're getting out, right?
0: Yeah, I'm getting out. I'm getting out of Dodge this weekend. So I, you know, this is Thursday. Usually we record on Fridays. And so I've smushed my week into a four-day week and... We are actually really busy, and so I've I've just I don't think I've had an hour this week that I haven't been like frantically working on things. And I I woke up today and I was like, is it Thursday? And I lost track of the days. So that's a good thing, it's considering a good thing. the the past year has been so crazy. But yeah, it's it's just been such a busy week that I've barely I've had to walk my dogs in the afternoons rather than at lunch, which is odd for me.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm happy for you, and I'm happy you can uh, go someplace sunny and nice and just take like three days and be away. And I realize it's going to be a short trip, but it's well-deserved.
0: Yes, I am going to go to a beach and just relax. It'll be nice for a long weekend.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Um, well, you have fun.
0: Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks for talking with me today once again, Chuck. and. Uh, keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck.
1: You take care.